Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 69. Last week we saw where Jesus and his disciples were in a Samaritan village and they didn't receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem and you had James and John wanting to bring fire down from heaven and (laughs) smite them. And Jesus was like, you don't know what spirit that you're asking of to be doing this and had a conversation on that story. We moved on from there to a series of individuals who seemed to be desiring to follow Jesus, but they had some type of conditional thing that they wanted or needed to take care of uh, beforehand and Jesus responding of what it looks like to take up your cross and deny yourself and follow the ways of the master and how it's a high calling and it's going to cost you things. And then we moved on from there about Jesus appointing the 72 disciples and sent them on two by two and sort of the conditions of whenever they enter a town on receiving the peace from someone who welcomes you or your peace going out from there. If they don't receive you, shaking the dust off your feet and moving on. Uh, It's some pretty tough stuff to be a disciple of Jesus right now uh, within the first century. Yeah, and uh, as we've mentioned, it seems like Jesus himself, the further we go along in the story, seems to get a little more, uh, I don't I don't know what the right words are. I hate to, you know, somehow make it sound like I'm saying something bad, but he gets a little more testy, gets a little more, I don't know, fiery, something. He's, you can see it in him and it's, it's pretty rough. But yeah, we also talked about how when he was sending out these 72 or 70, whatever you think, how that kind of represented, oh, that, that's sort of a, like an image of the nations versus that when he sent out the 12, that's like Israel. We, we made that little connection, right? So all good stuff. But then the text, I, I don't know, it kind of feels like we get this weird little side story. And I don't know if we should feel like it's, I don't know, whatever. Let's go ahead and read it. You'll see what I'm talking about. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. And this is uh, similar to Luke chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. I'm going to read Matthew and one little bit out of Luke. So it says this. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom 
than for you. Yowza. Yikes. That's pretty rough, huh? And then uh, that little bit in Luke, verse 16 says, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. That'll be important. We'll talk about that a little bit. But what do we got going on here? Uh, Again, I don't know how smoothly these stories real all all really fit together. It's kind of weird. Now there there may be some beautiful thread that's running through all of this, but I just got to be honest. I currently do not see it. I don't know what's going on. So so he sends the seventy two out, and in between them going and them coming back, we get this little I don't know rant. From Jesus. And since uh, the 72 were going before Jesus to each of these little towns, well, maybe this is just a little taste of what Jesus was saying when he got to all these little towns. Maybe, I don't know. Or maybe he sent them out and now time has passed. We've made it to the end of their mission. And maybe this is just kind of how Jesus is feeling toward the end of that mission. How well did it go or not go, whatever. Uh, Either way, Jesus is a little salty and he's not hiding it at all, right? But what is his big beef? He's not seeing repentance among Israel. Out of all the nations on the earth, they should be the ones most willing and most able to see God working in their midst and to respond accordingly with repentance. But they don't. Now, to be fair, many did. I mean, the number who were like real followers of Jesus, those who repented, etc., is a pretty big number measured in thousands. They were sincere. But in comparison to the whole nation, most did not, and especially among the leadership, hardly hardly any of them really were on board. So Jesus is bothered by this. It's the very thing that he's been calling to. John the Baptist was calling them to, and it's like they're excited about him, but they're just not really grabbing hold and doing what they really should do. So now, and then he also mentioned Samuel. I don't know. We I can't remember if we've talked about this in the podcast or not, or just us in real life, whatever. He calls out Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, one of these things is not like the others. Have you noticed? We really haven't talked about Chorazin that much, right? Yeah, or in my mind, Chorizo. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's but we, we haven't talked about it much, and yet Jesus is including it. And if you were to look at this on a, a map, I don't know, it, it's almost kind of like a little triangle-looking thing, you know? So you, you can imagine Jesus's ministry falling in these bounds. But he, Jesus, at least according to the stories that we have, everything that we've been reading, he seems to have lived out the, the vast majority of his mission right there in this area, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. It's all in and around these cities. Uh, so no one on earth 
In fact, no one even in Israel had the opportunity that these communities did. Israel, okay, generally, they weren't really accepting him, and that was bad enough. But these places? What possible excuse could they have? They were ground zero for this, I don't know, nuclear kingdom bomb that Jesus had released on the world, and they just, they weren't going along with it. And so, I don't know, you know, Jesus, uh, what do we say back from John 1, 1, uh, that Jesus is the word made flesh. And so we get this idea that he is some expression of God that, that's actually, you know, able to fit in creation. Uh, he, he is God in some way, he's divine. And so, so Jesus has seen a lot of human history, certainly in his divine nature. But even him as a plain human, we as plain humans, whatever, and, and us even just reading the scriptures, we can also see a lot about human history. And so Jesus uses that. He points to some of the worst examples in their scriptures, in their history, Tyre, Sidon, Sodom. These are all Canaanite cities. Canaanites are like the the epitome of the enemy of God kind of thing. So Jesus is saying that these cities, as bad as they were, they would have repented. They would have been in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes if they had seen what some of these Jewish cities had seen or heard what, what they've heard. And, I mean, hey, if you want an example of this, it, it, I, you know, a lot of times we try to say things, we go, oh, well, you know, maybe this is hyperbole or it's symbolic, figurative, whatever. I don't think that Jesus is even exaggerating because we've seen an example of this in our scriptures. Samuel, do you remember a time when some people who were not Israel did this like gigantic repentance, like citywide. It's got to be uh, Nineveh in the story of Jonah. <laughs> exactly. And Nineveh, they were bad guys. They were, that was the capital city of Assyria. This was bad stuff. They repented with Jonah's horrible little pouty kind of message. You can't even believe anybody heard him. The whole city repents, right? It doesn't even say that the, like, the livestock repented too. Yeah, it was it was crazy. But here we are in in Chorazin, Capernaum, Bethsaida, repentance just isn't happening. And so Jesus says, you know what? It's going to be more bearable, more tolerable for these places, Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, on the day of judgment than it will be for you. Now, I I think that this is kind of a cool peek into the judgment itself because I think it 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 enriches whatever image we have of it in our heads. We can actually see that there's some real judging that's going on. It's not just this simple black and white thing that a lot of times we try to make it. What we see in this particular case is that there's more responsibility, which I think we could equate with a harsher judgment, more responsibility for those who see more, or experience more, or know more. And the thing that you're judged against is the Torah. Why am I saying that? How do I know that? Because repentance only ever means one thing here in all of your Bible, 
and that is returning to Torah. It's returning to God's way. And so the greater your understanding of God and his ways, his Torah, the greater your revelation of God, okay, the greater your accountability, the harsher your judgment may in fact be. And, and I just think that, that that is such a great picture that we can pull from that. But anyway, he says, uh, you know, what about you, Capernaum? Because they were, I mean, you, you got to know, he spent most of his time there. Will you be exalted? Oh, nope, you're going to be brought down. If you think that you're going to be lifted up, if you think that you're going to be exalted in the heavens, which is, I think, just another way of, of saying that you will attain eternal life, you will, you will have life with God, whatever. If that's what you think, you're mistaken. You will instead attain death, and, and I think we could call it eternal death. Hades, as we see here, okay, to be fair, this is a different Greek word. Most of the time we've seen the word translated in English as hell, and we've said, no, 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 it, don't think of the modern uh, concept of hell. This is the grave. It's Sheol. Well, okay, this is a different word. It's Hades, but it's just pulling in the Greek so for, for the same thing. It's, it's not that big of a deal. It's the same story. This is not our modern conception of hell. It's simply the grave. It's simply Sheol. But the point is, man, what he's saying to Capernaum, this is harsh. These, this is tough stuff. And Luke, he adds a little summary, and and I guess we can say it's it's about the 70 or the 72 that are going out. Maybe it's to some of these cities that we're talking about here. But he adds in his summary, makes it really clear that, remember when he sent out the 12, we made a big deal that these were now apostles. We even called the Jewish word. They were a shaliach, right? They, they were on a mission and because he sent them out, they were like the man himself. Well, these 70 or 72 are also apostles. Now, granted, they're, they're still separate from the 12. The 12 have a special spot. But listen to what he says. If anyone hears what you are saying, they are, in actuality, hearing Jesus. Now, you know... Uh, Hopefully, they're truly hearing. Hopefully, they're, they're really uh, like responding in some sort of repentance and obedience. But still, the point is the same. If you hear them, you're actually hearing Jesus. If you reject any of them, the 70 or 72, or, or if they reject what you're saying, they are in actuality rejecting Jesus. Then he goes even further. Hey, if you're rejecting Jesus, you're rejecting God, the one who sent him. And what I think is so cool about that, so if you look at this and you go, look, with the 12, we call them apostles. They're separated from all the group. If we stop and go, but wait, these guys are also apostles. We get it. They're, they're not in the same class as the 12, but they're also apostles. Well, it's kind of similar for us today. When we attempt to take his message, when we go forth speaking and acting in his name, well, we better be sure that we're taking a faithful version of it because, let's just be clear, life and death are literally on the line. And that should be sobering to all of us, including you and me, Samuel, right? Yeah. Now, 
this little rant, it may seem like a bit of a downer, but it's addressing the very essence of who we are to be. We have to grab a hold of this, get the vision. We've got to see it. We've got to live it. We've got to, you know, in effect, spread it out. So, yeah, it's maybe a downer, but you know what? Sometimes we need to hear the truth, and sometimes it's a little hard. And I, I, I really appreciate this little section right here. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, at, at the very least, it's consistent with what has what God has said in the past. Like in <clears throat> at the end of Deuteronomy chapter thirty, God's telling Israel, "Like I've set before you life and death today," and He's like admonishing the people like choose life so that you may live and that you're it may go well with you and your children yeah. in the land it's like and yeah. in effect with what jesus is saying it's like every day that we wake up and that we're given breath in our lungs we're given in essence life we have that choice to choose you know the way life or yes. not death uh, by our actions our words our relationships what have you yeah, I, I, it probably seems to people like we're saying stuff like this a lot, but it, you can't overemphasize it. This is not a game. This is really big, important stuff. So, yeah, we're just trying to drive that point home. And then, okay, so so he sends out the 72, and then we get this little rant thing that we just talked about, and then, boom, we're right back to... Okay, the 72 are coming back, okay? So let's go on there. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, this is good stuff. So, so you got the 72 returning from their mission and, and we get no indication of how much time has passed. It could have been days, could have been weeks, it could have even been months. However, I don't know if you, you remember, we talked about this idea that, you know, we're, we're only about six months out from the big end. So since we're so close to the end of the story, it seems more likely that the mission was, you know, fairly short. At the most, weeks, small number of weeks, maybe. But we don't know. It's just me speculating. But they come back and they're all excited. And this is really interesting, Sam. Again, we're pointing back to things we've said. He writes here in Luke, even the demons are subject to us. Now, we mentioned that when they were sent out, there was a notable difference from when the 12 were sent out. These 70 or 72, they were not given, at least not explicitly in the text, they weren't given authority over unclean spirits and demons to cast them out. That simply wasn't mentioned. And so you might look at this and go, oh, well, you know what? That's why. 
That's why they were so surprised. That's why they were so excited. It's, and, and that would make for a really cool connection in the text. But it could also be that, that maybe, you know, we're overemphasizing that part of the text. Maybe it's not all that big of a deal. And it isn't so much surprise that they're uh, trying to put voice to. But it's, I don't know, we're, we're simply seeing into, look, this was the part of the experience that was most precious to them or most exciting to them, or whatever. Okay, it could just be that. But it was a big deal to them that the demons were were subject to them. They were able to cast out uh, the unclean spirits, right? And then Jesus says this funny thing. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now, he it, it's not like, you know, isolated. He says it as part of his full quote, verses 18 through 20, but... What's he referring to? I mean, Samuel, if you had to guess, you got anything off the top of your head where you just go, well, I just figured it was this, or somebody told me this once. All right, what do you got? Uh, I mean, I don't have anything specific other than the image of Satan being cast out of the heavens as like he previously once was an angel and then was cast out for some reason. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. So, and that that gets right to the point. Is he referring to a past event like that when, when you know, at least the way we kind of understand some of the scriptures that some beings in the heavenlies had rebelled and so they were actually cast out, cast down? Uh, we can, you could maybe see more of it, of that in Isaiah chapter fourteen, uh, around I think verse twelve is the specific part, but you could read all around that. So that's one good guess. But another one is, is he referring to the future, Satan's final defeat? And you could read about something like that out in Revelation chapter 20. Then again, I mean, think about this. Is he just referring to some internal uh, sense or knowledge or, or a vision that he has while the 72 are out on this mission and they're casting out demons? Was he able to, you know, see that in some way? Is he, maybe it has nothing to do with this circumstance. Maybe he's talking about uh, when he was uh, being tempted in the wilderness and how he defeated Satan at that time. Or The point is, I think the list can go on and, and you can fit whatever you want in here, but I think I might have something that'll help a little bit to narrow it down. This translation, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I think, and I again, I try not to do this too often, but I think it would be much better. It's, it's a little more literal, and I think it actually makes sense if we were to read it. I was beholding Satan fall. Now, that's, that's not real smooth in terms of English. Go ahead, Samuel. Not it, so that's not including the like lightning from heaven. The more literal interpretation is just Jesus saying, I was beholding Satan fall, and then that's uh, cut off from no. there? No, yeah, no, I think the like lightning is in there. Okay. Yeah, and instead of saying, I saw Satan fall, I think it's better if it says, I was beholding Satan fall. Mm-hmm. And so so I, I think if we were to take that translation and, and let it be a little more of its natural or more literal self— I think that fits a little better into the context, and I think it actually adds weight to the idea that Jesus, he had 
some sense or knowledge or maybe even uh, like vision of their mission and its successes while they were going about in the villages, while they had those experiences of casting out demons or whatever, I think that Jesus was beholding that. He was beholding Satan fall each time they were involved in something of that nature. Now, does that mean that I'm 100% right? No, but I think that actually helps, and I think it narrows down the possibilities. So, I don't know. I thought that was pretty good. What else does he say? Oh, he tells them that they can tread on serpents and scorpions. So, Samuel, are you imagining that uh, Jesus is like, dude, I've given you so much stuff, y'all ought to be going barefoot, and oh, by the way, whenever you see snakes and scorpions, you need to go do a little dance, right? I mean, is that where he's headed? (laughs) I don't know, unless there's some type of Jewish thinking that demonic or evil forces are connected to parts of the created world like serpents and scorpions. Oh, what a great idea. But let's let's pause for a moment. What if we did take this literally? Hey, you're going to tread on serpents and scorpions. Well, we might go to Acts chapter 28 verses 3 through 6. I'm sure you remember this Samuel, Paul was bitten by a viper. And there were no ill effects. In fact, the people thought he was a god because of that. But in all of the New Testament, that's the only, you know, if you want to call it this, that's the only proof text. So I, seeing this this sentence and knowing that Paul is the only single example that we have, I'm suggesting maybe you shouldn't ought to run out and become one of those snake handling preachers. Not anytime soon. If we were to step back from the literal thing and take it a little more figuratively, the idea of serpents and I'm sorry, serpents and scorpions, I think it could be better understood as like every evil thing or every harmful thing, or you might even think of it like evil spirits. So the very thing that you were talking about, Samuel. Now, do we have any text that maybe supports that idea? Well, we could go back to Psalm 91.13. How about you read that, Samuel? You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. All right. So, Samuel, do we have lots of examples in the history of Israel where, you know, it's just like a thing. They're all the time stepping all over lions and adders, serpents. Um, I mean, I can't think right off, but what, I mean, one of the very big, first stories in the Bible, God tells Eve that her progeny will crush the head of the serpent. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's present within their folklore, at least. Right, yeah. And that was specifically referring to Messiah, to Jesus, right? The thing is, that's not a thing. And so, you know, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. It's not literal. It's not telling them that that's what they're going to be doing. In fact, if you went back and you read all of Psalm 91, it would be even more clear, more apparent that it wasn't to be taken literally. And, and just to be clear, all of, the, all of the apostles suffered horrible deaths. So, I mean, whatever this was, it certainly was going to have its limits. 
And uh, and to be fair, okay, John didn't suffer a horrible death. They tried to make him suffer a horrible death. It just didn't work. So he ended up dying later, but whatever. But the question is, how would Psalm 91 apply to them? You're going to be able to tread on the lion, the adder. You're going to trample all these things underfoot. The point of this is to say, look, this stuff, it, it isn't that it isn't just literal and we should take it a little more figuratively, whatever. It's also not a formula. And this, it reminds me, I was listening recently to uh, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. And he was talking about how, look, there are a lot of things in the scripture. You've got to discern the difference between a principle and a promise. And so some of the things that we're talking about, when we see them in scripture, we have to understand, look, just because you see it one time or even a couple of times doesn't mean that it is a fixture, that it's a given, that it must always be this way. Understand the difference between principle and promise. And this very thing that we're talking about, treading on serpents and scorpions, whatever, we're going to see it again later in Mark chapter 16, verse 18. It's going to come up. The point, what I'm trying to get to is just to say, look, if you're reading this, don't go out and think that you are immune to the effects of snakes and scorpions and all this stuff. Maybe you will be, because maybe God's doing something, whatever, but don't think it's a promise. Don't don't read it that way. That would be silly. Yeah, that reminds me real quick of uh, a saying that uh, Marty Solomon has about the book of Proverbs. He defines Proverbs as, quote, wise sayings about life that are generally true and yeah what he's what he's getting at is that most of the proverbs are talking about how like you know if you're one of the righteous obedient following pursuing god then you're going to be blessed and you're going to thrive and those who are wicked not following the way they're ultimately going to come to ruin but we see in life that that always that doesn't always happen and that there's way more seemingly randomness in how both sides experience good things and bad things. So we should take that principle like elsewhere in the scriptures too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. And again, Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature and the other parts of the wisdom literature are things like Job and Ecclesiastes. Boy, those aren't good news stories, right? So it's, it's when those are all taken together that one might actually get a grasp of some real wisdom. So, yeah, it's a great point. Great point. All right, so back here in this story, the real point here is, is that you've got these 72, they're rejoicing over the power and authority that they had experienced or, or wielded on their mission. And you know what? Jesus was encouraging them. What they had experienced was a good thing. It was worth rejoicing over. And as if that wasn't enough, there's more to come, maybe for them particularly, uh, but not just them. This would be for mankind throughout time. But as cool as that was, there was something even more important for them to be rejoicing over, that their names were written in heaven. Now, Samuel, let's take a, uh, boy, what do we want to call this? Field trip. Just a crazy, yeah, crazy rush through the scriptures talking about, what are we talking about their names written in heaven? So, Samuel, you ready? 
Oh, yeah. Some of these are going to be full references. Some of them will just be little snippets that I pulled out, but let's do it. Exodus 32, 32. Please blot me out of your book that you have written. Exodus 32, 33. I will blot out of my book. Psalm 69, 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Isaiah 4, 3. Everyone who has been recorded for life. Ezekiel thirteen fourteen, Nor be enrolled in the register. Daniel 12, 1. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Philippians 4, 3. Whose names are in the book of life. Hebrews 12, 23. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Revelation 20, verses 12 to 15. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And I and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah. Now, okay, that's a lot of references, and I bet you there are more. But the idea is that somehow God is keeping some sort of books, some sort of record, some sort of register, some sort of roll, and and you want to find your way onto the book of life. And what's funny, most of us would never recognize this, this is all Rosh Hashanah imagery. As part of their Rosh Hashanah celebration, the, the, the Jews in Israel— they, they have this idea of these books, and, and a judgment happens every year. You've got the book of deeds. This is everything that you've done. It's so, so that's what you're judged by. You're judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. You've got the book of the living, the book of life, and the book of the dead. Those who, you know what? Their fate is sealed. They don't even have a chance. Their judgment is going to be death. And interestingly, you also have the book of intermediates. And that's going to end up playing an important role in judgment, you know, once the podcast makes it to Revelation. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm going to be uh, sleeping in the brass-handled Buick at that point. But anyway, (laughs) uh, we got, uh, uh, so so he talks about this idea of uh, healing and and casting out demons, etc. All of these things are awesome. And you know what? Samuel, do you want to experience stuff like that? To some effect, yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of scary to think about, but I mean, it would also give me lots of confirmation about the divine and the spiritual world too. Yeah, yeah, I would love to, and I would say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a little older. There have been a few instances in my life where, boy, I, I kind of have to go with, you know what? I, God, I, there's no other way to explain this. God did that. Okay, but they're small in number, and I would love to experience many, many more if I could. But if that is what I seek, well, then I've completely missed the point. My real goal has to be to be in the book of life. Now, uh, you know, our walk, it, it, may, it may begin at an altar saying a prayer, or maybe it'll start with something spectacular, miraculous, you know, being uh, uh, healed from an addiction or who, whatever. 
But, but, but that is not the end of your story. It's not the end of your walk. Your walk has to be about seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, entering into life then and even now through learning to live according to his loving instructions in the Torah. And you do all of this by choice. You don't do it because you think you're going to earn something. You do it because of what's already been done. It's because of what's been given to you. So anyway, casting out demons, uh, healing the sick, whatever, these are awesome things. I hope everybody listening gets to experience stuff like this in their life, that God's really doing it. But don't miss the main point. You gotta find your way into that book of life. Yeah, that reminds me what you said of, I'm going to go on a outdoor type of analogy, but if you're in the mountains and you're hiking along the spine of the ridge line, the amount of time that you experience on the summit or the peak of one of the mountains is much less than the time that you spent like going from one peak to the other or the 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 time below the peak in quote unquote the valley and i mean i know that that's people use that in a cliche type of a way but there is some truth to that to say that we should be striving to find the the beauty and see god being present in like what you've said in the past the mundane the the regular, the the valley parts of life that don't seem as grand as when you're on the peak. Not to diminish the goodness that we experience when those miraculous and unexplainable things happen, but they're they're much more spaced out than the rest of the time that we spend uh, on our journey of life. Yeah, and again, you've got to remember. All of us have to remember why is it that the the mundane parts of life are are just as interesting or some might even argue more interesting and important it's because you seeking the kingdom you representing god being in the name of god you know all of those things you actually bring the kingdom into those things you elevate the mundane to the holy it's such an important picture, bringing God into every facet of life. That is your role. That is why you are called Christian. It's ah, such a great picture. All right. What are we doing here? Uh, still reading. What's our next bit? We're looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. And this is sort of lined up here with Luke chapter 10, verses 21 to 24. Again, I'm going to read from Matthew, and I'm going to throw in a little bit from Luke. So here we go. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, Luke, he adds at the end of his, verses 23 and 24, Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So this is kind of cool. It wasn't long ago we were going through this big rant of Jesus. It felt like a pretty big downer. <laughs> and now this one seems like really, hey, this is great, right? So what was what's going on here? Uh, it says, uh, thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. Okay, we've talked about this a lot recently, Samuel. We've talked about the little ones. This, it's like this theme is just continuing on. Jesus, okay, he loves children. There's no question about that. But again, I think that his point here is about those who become like children, willingly taking on that lower status, truly submitting to God in all things, lifting others up above themselves. And in this case, I mean, we're talking about his disciples, and we could be the 12, the 72, many others, whatever. But of all these, they're not the super trained religious leaders. You know, we would think of scribes, Pharisees, whoever it might be. Now, some definitely were. Some, even some priests, Jesus had a big effect. And so it's not to say that it's inherently bad to be trained religious leader, whatever, But so many of Jesus' disciples were not that. They weren't the cream of the crop. And yet, God was working out his plan through them. And this is, think about this, Sam. It's very consistent with God throughout all the scriptures. Think about all the stories, especially when we talk about the patriarchs. How many times did God actually choose the firstborn? Uh, Well, (laughs) I'm not thinking about Isaac, Jacob. Joseph, not them. They weren't the firstborn. Exactly. He was, it was a thing with God. He kept skipping the firstborn. It's kind of weird. Or how about, how many times did he pick those uh, by appearance? Think about that Sam, uh, that story with Samuel the prophet and when he was trying to find a new king. All the older brothers, well, they looked kingly, right? Walked right by him. And it's like, None of these work. This isn't who God wants. Do you have any more sons? <laughs> yeah, let's go get little David out in the field, right? But he doesn't pick by appearance. They aren't the best choice. And this is, it seems to consistently please God to choose those who don't appear to be the big, awesome leader, the one that everybody else would naturally choose or most likely choose. This is God's gracious will. It's his good pleasure. It's it's such an interesting thing. But Jesus is seeing all this worked out right in his midst. And he's taking a moment to just 
I don't know, celebrate God, celebrate God's ways, God's wisdom. He's seeing it worked out right before him in the people he's been hanging out with, and he is loving it. He loves this moment. So we got all things. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. This. All right. I'm going to pick on the text, Samuel. The English text, not the, the stuff underneath it. So there's this thing. He goes, all right, so thank you, you know, the wise and understanding little children instead. This is your gracious will. And then he says, and, and in all of the translations I looked at, I'm sure I didn't look at them all, of course, but they all said, all things have been handed over to me. And I actually find this so strange and so amazing because though every translation have it has it, the word things isn't actually in the underlying text. It's not in the manuscripts. Now, he was talking about things before, and so it's understandable that you thought that it might carry through. But if we look at the actual context, he's talking about these little ones. He's talking about the ones that God has chosen. And so, what if we just read it the way the text says? All have been handed over to me. Jesus is talking about the little ones, the ones who are willing to actually hear God's message and obey. It, the, the Greek is just talking about all or every or each or every one. It's, it's talking about the people, the ones that God has chosen. Now, we could be talking about power and authority and those kinds of things, But it makes a lot more sense in the context that we're talking about people, the little ones. They've been handed over, or you might even say handed down, like an inheritance. They are Jesus's inheritance. And I think that's a much more appropriate picture for what we're talking about right here. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that if listeners, including myself, are somewhat familiar with the Gospels, we take... Jesus's words at the end of his story where after his resurrection and he says all authority has been given to me and that's when he commissions them out to go make disciples yeah um, we we kind of superimpose his words later in the story to instances like this when they don't necessarily have to be that that point as well yeah yeah that's a really good point I hadn't thought about that that's really good and and again, remember, we have just gotten out of that section where he's saying, hey, you know, don't rejoice over what you were able to do, but, you know, that your name is written in heaven. Same way. Don't, don't uh, uh, think about all these other things that are going on. What's important is that, you know, you're in the program. You're like, you made the team or I don't know, whatever you want to call it, right? You're, you're, you're in, you're, you're part of the in crowd. I don't know. It just, it's such a great picture. But yeah, you're right. We, we do. We superimpose these ideas from other places and we get things confused. Anyway, you can take it or leave it. That's the way that I see it. But uh, I think it actually helps make it more understandable. You got my vote. Yeah. And then he, he talks about, who's he talking about? Uh, no one knows uh, the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So all of these little ones, all of the, you know, quote-unquote children, the, the, the ones who have chosen to become like 
children, they have been given to Jesus either so that Jesus may reveal the Father to them or because Jesus has revealed the Father to them. I guess you could look at that either way. But the, the, again, what's the, the real uh, magic or the payoff or whatever? It's because Jesus is the one who truly knows God. And Jesus is the one who is truly known by God. No one else. I guess we could probably toss the Holy Spirit in there, but whatever, you get the idea. See, Jesus delights in revealing the Father. We couldn't know him in the same way that we can through Jesus. There's something special in that, and Jesus delights in that, especially these little ones. It isn't, it isn't as if God or Jesus is somehow picking the winners and losers. Some people read this scripture and they, they see that, right? That God has somehow chosen some and others are, they're just born for hell or whatever. Ah, I don't like that. God isn't Jesus. They're not picking winners and losers. It's God and Jesus rejoicing in the winners. It's, 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 it's within the reach of all, but not all can be wise and understanding but all can be humble. And so that's the key. If, if not everybody can be wise and understanding, well, then I guess there are some who just aren't going to make it. But everybody can be humble. And so it's that it's within the reach of all. Jesus is having this happy moment because he's seeing God's, and, and you know, careful how you hear my words, he's seeing God's universal invitation He's seeing that this invitation also has universal accessibility. It's open to all. It's within the grasp of all. And it's Jesus's good pleasure to reveal the Father to those who sincerely and humbly seek him. That is, they accept that invitation. They do, in fact, grasp it. And I just... That is such a great picture, Samuel. Jesus, he's like like a kid in a candy store. And, and when somebody really, really sees and accepts that invitation, wants to be a part, he can't wait to show the Father to them. And I just, I love that image. And it, I, I don't know, it just reminds me of me with, with uh, like with my own kids or my grandkids uh, maybe like reading books, telling stories that I think are great or, you know, whatever it might be. I, I know that that feeling of just delighting in sharing something that is good, you know? So anyway, that's what I see here. It's interesting. I was thinking like tonally, why would Jesus be all of a sudden showing this high amount of elation with God's workings and everything, but I guess if you go back to Luke ten seventeen, the 72 come back to him, and they're reporting some measure of success by them starting the conversation like, even the demons are subject to us in your name, and yeah. so, I mean, that, in some way, that had to have got Jesus excited to be like, man, I commissioned these people to go, you know, share the message of the gospel of the kingdom, and they came yeah. back and you know, they've got, they're showing fruit, like it worked, like uh, that has to lead to 
what we're reading now with him being so elated at yeah. what God is doing. Yeah, Jesus went from being salty to being sweet. It's great, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a cool thing to see. And again, he's, he, I don't know. I I just love seeing when Jesus is excited about something and, and trying to imagine, okay, how does this really apply to me? And when is it that he's excited about me and my life? That kind of stuff. So I don't know. I hope people are getting some image of that in their head. Uh, but he had, there, there's an extra thing here. So he, he goes through all this. He's excited about all this. And then, I don't know, it, it's this weird little addition at the end uh, where he's like, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. Right? Remember all that? This, this is also really good. So, so in Judaism, remember, Jesus is Jewish. He's hanging around in first century Israel. Everybody he's talking to is basically Jewish. I mean, okay. So in Judaism, the Torah is referred to as a yoke. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. Now, generally speaking, though, you know, a, a yoke, when you think of like putting it on a, a beast, maybe you're going to plow a field or whatever. Okay. Now, generally, a yoke symbolized slavery or service or oppression. That all makes sense. You can imagine that when you picture a yoke, right? But again, in Judaism, the yoke of Torah or the yoke of God or the yoke of the kingdom was always considered to be the opposite of that. Now, on one hand, you were still, I don't know what you say, bound by it or or enslaved to it or by it or whatever. Okay, but it brought freedom and goodness. And so here, those who labor and are heavy laden, well, I guess there's a few possibilities. It could be those who are under the, the strict literal requirements of the religious leaders. That was probably, that probably felt like a, a yoke, slavery, service, bondage, whatever. Or it could simply be that there are uh, those who suffer under the yoke of this world or the yoke of sin or the yoke of, of man, even, that, like that kind of stuff. And I'm sure there are others, but either way, the proper interpretation and practice of Torah and I'm going to say, okay, that is represented by Jesus's entire life. So the proper inter- interpretation and practice of Torah is rest. It is easy. It is light. Jesus knows this because he's living it. And he wants them to come join in to whatever degree they're able. Now, I'm sure it sounds a little counterintuitive, but we've said it many times before, the Torah, it's a gift to mankind. We shouldn't look at it as law and burden and, and what all the things that we do. There's goodness in it. Now, Luke, uh, you know, he added on to the end of it also the little bit where Jesus, and it's kind of like he's taking the time to celebrate privately with his disciples as well, right? And of course, you know, lucky, right? They they get to uh, celebrate with Jesus. You get to see and hear what so many generations have longed for. Your Old Testament is filled with people who longed for this day. Prophets, kings, whatever, fill in the blank. They didn't get to see it, but you do. 
And I, I don't know, I, this is such a great place to end today's podcast because Jesus, I mean, he is, he is on a high. Mm-hmm. This is great stuff. And, and this is neat to see in a Savior who knows he's very close to a pretty bad end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Um, I, I don't think that I had a question before you did this section, but now that you finished it, I feel like you've answered my question, but maybe bringing it up can help reinforce people who might have been struggling with this as well, because when you read verses 28 through 30 in Matthew 11, I mean, I love that passage, but through this journey that we've been taking, thinking about the aspect of the cost of discipleship and how high of a calling it actually is, and in some essence, you're you're giving everything up in order to adhere and live under God's standards, and you know, there's probably some pains to that in the self-denial that that requires. Um, and I was going to ask, like, well, how can we have this part of discipleship that is really difficult and hard, and at times it feels burdensome, and now Jesus is saying that the yoke of God is light, uh, it's easy, the, the yeah. burden isn't heavy. But you and I actually were talking about this with others yesterday. We were doing a study in Galatians and Paul, the apostles, talking about the law and everything and justification and stuff. And we had a conversation that basically the summary was um, if the, the, the law or Torah could technically justify humanity, but the problem isn't in the law itself. It's in human weakness, like the, the, the things that we experience that feel tough or tense or difficult and weighing those options and choosing God over ourselves that, that has nothing to do with like the easiness or the hardness of God's law or his yoke or his Torah. It's it's the part within our ourselves that's broken, that's flawed, that we're still waiting to be redeemed, that we're having to wrestle with now before yeah. it is redeemed. So I'm I'm just taking that as there's nothing wrong with God's system when I feel the hardness. That's not even what God intended. It's something that he's, uh, it's that something that we're battling with, and he has yes. promised to help us in that battle, and then he's also promised us the day when that struggle will ultimately be over for us, too. Oh, so glad you brought that up, Samuel, because it was good yesterday, and it's even better today. <laughs> it's It's that thing— and and I totally get what you're talking about. It's like we you know we've talked about it. It's a high calling, you know, whatever. But here's the thing, and and hopefully saying it this way will help a little too. The difficulty that we experience, that that the part that makes it feel like it costs us everything and all of that, is because what we're fighting against is our own will. That's the difficulty. It isn't the law itself, because in the law, I mean, if we could successfully lay down our own life, lay down our own will and just really seek him and, and you know, start to live a life that looks like Torah, just like Jesus did. If we did that, 
we would experience fulfillment like we've never known, joy like we've never known. All of that, it would be great. It would be easy. It would be light. But our struggle is within ourselves. It's our own will and the fact that we so much want to elevate our own will above God's will, and that is the exact opposite. That's what uh, Adam and Eve did in the garden. We need to be more like Jesus, but not my will, your will be done. You know, ah, such a great thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you said it well with the the yoke thing. um, That another way to look at it is that what is our master? Um, Paul, the apostle, says it later in his letters. Like he even mentions two different laws. You've got the law of sin and death, and you've got the law of righteousness. And like Jesus is essentially trying to showcase what it looks like when you allow the master of God, Torah, uh, dictate how you live your life rather than the things that lead to sin and death and brokenness and corruption. So, Yeah, if you're looking at it like it's some sort of burden or like you've got to do good enough to be accepted, you are just not getting it. It's just not it. This is just... Oh, we've said it before. It's like a giant treasure chest of gold sitting in the middle of your room, and all you got to do is open it up and start. You know, it, it's great. Oh man, I got a <laughs> Area Fifty One way out in left field song reference. Um, <laughs> Bob Dylan had a season in his performing career where he he grew up Jewish, but he had a season where he had like a spiritual awakening and like started to seemed like he was following Jesus and he um he actually released an album I'm trying to remember what the album's called but that's not important but the the title song on that album is called You Got to Serve Somebody and uh, basically what he's saying in the song is like you can't get around whether you're going to serve somebody in this life and it's either going to yep. be your, yourself or it's going to be God so like who are you going to yeah, serve that's right. <laughs> That's yeah. That's great. That's great. I might have to now. Nah, so if you want to hear yet. some uh, <laughs> mediocre '80s rock pop about Jesus, listen to that song. There you go. <laughs> well, you know what, Samuel? What we should do is stop the podcast now so that people can go ahead and start actually doing everything that we just talked about. Sounds good to me. All right, then we're done. Okie dokie. Oh! Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.